Welcome to episode nine of Agents of Everything. My name is James Tripp. This episode is called The Power of the Pendulum and the Chaos Wave. Now, as you hear that power of the pendulum, you may think maybe this is something to do with dowsing or divining or using a pendulum in this sense. It's not. It's got nothing to do with that. I'm calling this the power of the pendulum because when I was young, in my uh, teens, back in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a local band called The Power of the Pendulum, so it's in my mind. But I want to talk about a concept of pendulums or pendula. I don't know what the plural is. According to an author called Vadim Zeeland. Now, this is an author that I've just discovered. I don't know. I got this audio book called Reality Transurfing Parts 1 to 5 got it on Audible about probably three or four months ago, maybe a little bit longer. And I don't know why I bought it. I have no clue why I bought it. There would have been some reason. It would have been a suggestion. It would have been something I read in one of the reviews. I didn't know anything about it ahead of time. I bought it and I saw once I got it that it was over 30 hours long. So I thought, well, actually, maybe uh, I won't start on that. And I didn't. It was only relatively recently that I started listening to this because I was kind of bored of the audiobook that I was listening to. I just looked down my library and thought, well, I haven't started this book, Reality Transurfing, Vadim Zealand. I know nothing about this guy and I knew nothing about this guy. Looking at his author bio, he plays his cards close to his chest. He says he's Russian. He says he was a research scientist in quantum physics in the Soviet Union. Maybe that's so, maybe that's not. He also says quite explicitly that he doesn't provide any information about his private life in order to validate the principles that he teaches. He says they work, but he keeps his private life private because that's the kind of guy he is. He values privacy. And I think this is an interesting thing, and I might come back to this because I think it actually resonates quite deeply with his philosophy. Now, I started listening to this. I listened to the first chapter, and it was like, okay, so-so. The second chapter on the topic of what he calls pendulums, I'll use that term. I don't know if pendular is actually the correct plural. That was very interesting to me. And I've started listening to the third chapter as well, which is on what he calls waves of fortune. Now, this is also very interesting to me. And with the second chapter and the third chapter, what I'm seeing is that what he's teaching is very, very resonant with a lot of stuff that I've been teaching over the years. Some people who are listening to this know that my YouTube channel was called James Trip Chaos Wave for a long time, and I've unpacked that metaphor there. But I also particularly want to talk about this idea that he talks about as uh, pendula or pendulums and how some of the nuances that he shared on this have had me looking at this in a different way, looking at something that's kind of familiar in some ways, but in a different way that I do think is a phenomenal value in terms of life, how we do life, this kind of thing. So a pendulum, what's a pendulum? Why are they powerful? For Vadim Zeeland, as I understand it, I may have got the wrong end of the stick. I'm not a scholar here. I'm just someone who's listening to his audiobook and taking the ideas and playing with them. But a pendulum to Vadim Zeeland is anything that is a pattern of interactions, thoughts, whatever that perpetuates. Okay. So this is a bit vague. So let's start to define this by giving some examples. Um, the place you work, that's a pendulum. The company you work for, if you work for a company, that's a pendulum. Your own business, 
That's a pendulum. A club you might be involved in, formal or informal, that's a pendulum. A political movement, that's a pendulum. Anything, basically, where you get together and interact with other people that starts to develop its own set of organizational or organizing principles and patterns, right? All complex systems are self-organizing. So we get these self-organizing patterns. And of course, you might say, well, they're not self-organizing. The people who participate in them organize them. Yeah, they're a part of it, so it's self-organizing. But it's looking at this thing as a collection of interactions, ideas uh, that tend to perpetuate themselves. Now, this is quite similar to the idea of an egregore in some ways. People who are interested in certain strands of esoteric philosophy will know of the idea of an egregore. An egregore is a thought form that takes on board energy and acts in the world. Now, where I think that Zealand's idea of a pendulum is slightly different is it's going beyond the thought form and looking at the thought form in interaction with activity, behavior, biology, all, all sorts of other forms. So it's not just the sort of thought form. It exists in the world more and perpetuates in the world. So you can get uh, a pendulum like you might belong to a, a chess club, for example, right? Maybe you're on the committee, that's a pendulum. But another example of a pendulum might be this. Now, this is an example that actually comes from a client that I've just taken on just a few days ago. And somebody came to me with a background, uh, military background. They were in some combat zones, witnessed some very, very unpleasant things and had a diagnosis of PTSD, but they thought they dealt with this, but it had all flared back up and it had flared back up due to a situation that had occurred in their life. So somebody had moved in with a neighbor, they got a new partner and this new neighbor was a very abusive, loud, destructive person who'd been threatening other neighbors, making a lot of noise, drinking and partying and all sorts of things. And this client was very, very upset by this situation and all of their old quote unquote PTSD symptomology had started coming back up again, uh, stuff they thought they dealt with. They came to me saying, I just want to get all this stuff that I thought I had packed away in a box, packed back away in a box. But the real issue for this guy, okay, that was a part of the picture. The real issue for this guy was, and I said this to him, I said, you know, I appreciate you're probably a peace loving individual. Right? You would prefer to be living your life in peace and well-being. And that's your preference. Am I right? He's like, absolutely. And I said, but this person has entered your life and they're probably, you know, what I would call a chaos monkey, right? They want conflict. They want drama to be unfolding. This is part of how they do their thing. And they're pulling you into it. And I said, unfortunately, when you get a situation like this, they are usually the ones that end up being the driving dynamic in it. Okay. So in a sense, this situation is a pendulum as well. Pendulum has emerged, a pendulum is self-organized. Now, a person might say, well, it's not a pendulum. It's a person who's doing a particular activity, but the state of affairs will be perpetuated by everybody's engagement in it. Now, for those who know about these things, you might start to see a resonance with some of the ideas of family systems therapy. They start to recognize that if somebody has a problem, it's not an individual with a problem. It's a part of a broader dynamic that might exist within a family system. 
Okay, and some people take this into the world of organizational development. They recognize we're not just dealing with a bunch of individuals. We're dealing with patterns of interaction that perpetuate. So when we continue to dance a dance, it continues to unfold the way it does. A big influence on my work is the work of the strategic therapists, Don Jackson, Paul Vatslavic, Richard Weakland, John Fish. And they were influenced by Gregory Bateson back in the 60s, early 70s, as a part of an organization, which would have been a pendulum itself, called the Paolo Alto Brief Therapy Unit in the Mental Research Institute there at Paolo Alto University. Right? They were looking at these patterns that perpetuate. They wouldn't have called them pendulums or pendula or whatever, but they saw self-perpetuating patterns of interaction, which are based in interactions of behaviors which come from interactions of thought. Thought is a kind of internal behavior and they perpetuate. So their approach to changing things was all about interrupting the pattern, strategically interrupting the pattern. And from those who are curious about this, from a sort of therapy or change work perspective, another big influence on me is Frank Farrelly's provocative therapy. If you ever see Frank Farrelly working with somebody to help affect change, he basically sits there and kind of personally trolls them in a sense, right? They're trying to unpack their problem, all of the thoughts that go with it. They're taking it seriously. Farrelly just messes with them. He's all the trickster. Now, what he's doing is he's not participating in an attempt to solve the problem. He is merely disrupting the patterns that are looking to perpetuate. That's what he's doing. Now, some people can find this confusing, maybe even upsetting. They may even be offended by his behavior because they don't see it as helping. They don't see it as really engaging in the problem and helping them to solve the problem. Now, here's the thing. So going back to Vadim Zeeland's idea of a pendulum, what he points out is a pendulum takes energy from everybody that participates in the pendulum, right? And you will always feed a pendulum by participating in it, but you will also feed a pendulum by fighting against it. In fact, fighting against it can be part of what keeps the pendulum in place. So pendulums aren't always sustained by cooperation. They can be sustained by conflict, the energy of conflict, the energy of cooperation. So with the example of my client, they're going to have some difficulty here because they're trying to fight against what's going on, but that fighting against is part of the pattern that perpetuates. And again, you see this in certain family systems dynamics where you would get, in family systems, you wouldn't call it a pendulum, but you would get a pendulum perpetuating. Okay, so what do you do when you start to see there's a pendulum, right? Because trying to solve the problem that seems to be at the heart of the pendulum is very often feeding the pendulum. I'm not saying that problem solving doesn't ever work. It can work. But usually, if problem solving is going to unravel a pendulum, it will do it very quickly. If it's not done that, it's likely feeding it. And this is a major thing when you do change work with people, or at least the way I look at doing change work, is people are good at problem solving. If their problem solving hasn't solved the problem, it's probably part of what's perpetuating the problem. The way they're thinking about it, the way they're engaging with it. And that's why in neurolinguistic programming, you have this aphorism, one of the presuppositions of NLP. If what you're doing isn't working, do something different, do anything different. Because if you're doing something that's only, uh, that's different, but makes sense according to the existing logic, that existing logic is part of what's been perpetuating the problem or 
what we might call the pendulum in this instance. So Vadim Zeeland is quite clear in his chapter on pendulums that you do not fight against the pendulum. You do not resist a pendulum. Resistance feeds the pendulum. Now I see this in change work all the time. People trying to resist their problem, push their problem away, get rid of it is always a part of what perpetuates the problem. One of my favorite lines I often use with clients is what you cannot be with will not let you be because their pattern of resistance of the quote unquote problem is part of the grip in which the problem is held and maintained. So in order to unravel it, we always need to do something counterintuitive, something odd. That's why Frank Farrelly's tricksterism works really, really well. He's not resisting the issue, the pendulum, right? And neither is he feeding into it through cooperating with it by trying to problem solve it. He is merely declining it. He is declining it, right? Now, uh, Vadim Zeeland uses the language, or at least the translator, because I believe this was originally written in Russian, uses the distinction of refusing versus resisting. Okay, refusing versus resisting. It's a very useful distinction. One day on Agents of Everything, I will talk more deeply about the power of distinctions as places to create choice in how we engage with the world. So here's a distinction, refusal versus resistance. Now I see that, I can feel my way into that. But if I'm resisting something, there's an energy being put into it. Whereas if I'm refusing, it's just, no, I don't do that. It's simply uh, closing it off, okay? I actually prefer, and this is just going into my own feeling and rendering it up slightly differently, I prefer the energy of declining over refusing. Refusing's got a little bit more um, uh, thou shalt not pass to it, so I can see there's a power to that, but I prefer declining, right? It's so inconsequential, I am merely going to decline it. So if you think about the energy signature that goes with declining versus refusing versus resisting, and you think about this idea, and you can take this as metaphor, you don't have to take this literally, as what kind of energy are you feeding, if you want to minimize the energy you're feeding, my personal bias here is towards declining, declining the pendulum, right? Letting it be no big deal. In fact, a friend of mine, a guy called Marcus Oki, haven't seen Marcus for years, would love to catch up with him at some point. He used to uh, do this bit of business and it was part of how he would look at life. He used to say, if you can learn to live by the philosophy of no big deal, then life just gets better. A lot of the things you were taking as being a big deal, once they're no big deal, then life gets better. Now, if we look at it through this pendulum uh, construct, this idea here, we can see that by treating something as no big deal, we reduce the amount of energy we're feeding it. Now, pendulums, if you don't feed them energy, they die. Okay? They, it's almost like this is when they're a bit like an egregore. We can treat them as if they wish to perpetuate themselves. And so therefore they draw people in and pull energy from people. Okay. And that can be, to reiterate this point, it can be the energy of trying to solve a problem, trying to do a good thing. But all it does is perpetuate the pendulum, right? And it will therefore perpetuate the forces that are resisting the pendulum because they're part of what's feeding it as well. So a lot of activists who are going, right, we've got to resist, we've got to go in there, we've got to really do this thing. They're actually often perpetuating some of the stuff that they're looking to try and resolve. And it's the same in people's personal lives as well. 
Most of the time, the actions that they're taking to resolve the thing are part of what's perpetuating the thing. Okay. So we want to be able to see these pendula, these pendulums. We want to be able to see where they are, where they're taking energy from us. Now, another thing that is offered by Vadim Zeeland here is that all pendulums will take energy from you if you participate in them, however you participate in them. Right? They will. That is a given. There are no pendulums that will not take energy from you. But they're not all equal in terms of their level of either destructiveness or creativeness. Some pendulums can be very, very destructive in somebody's life. They might not even realize it. Right? They might be involved in a cause that they think is doing good things, but it ends up eating them up. And that cause never delivered its outcomes anyway. In fact, maybe it just exacerbated the very problem it was trying to solve. This is a very common thing in life, hence the age-old aphorism, the path to hell is paved with good intention. But some other pendula, they're going to take energy, they're going to eat energy up, but maybe they do deliver something back. Maybe there's a trade that somebody says, you know what, that's worth it. A simple example might be maybe somebody goes and works in a corporation. They don't necessarily align with the values of that corporation. It drains a lot from them, but it provides them an income. And they may decide, do you know what, the trade-off is worth it. This is kind of eating me up, but I need to make money somehow. It's, it's absolutely not true. There are a million other ways that money can come our way. Uh, but people get caught in it and they decide that that's not a bad trade-off. So they work their whole life. Maybe they even enjoy some of their work, right? And they get some income. So it's a trade-off they're, they're willing to um, participate in, in living into that pendulum, right? And giving themselves to the service of the pendulum because they get something back. So the message that Vadim Zeeland is sharing is that pendulums are everywhere. It's, it's almost like we cannot not participate in pendulums to some degree or another. It would be impossible to um, decline all pendulums. And even if we succeeded in declining all pendulums, if we don't do something else instead, what are we doing? We just have no life. Now, this brings me to a distinction, and I may one day do an episode on this. People who know my work will know that I... Uh, share this distinction of black path work versus white path work, right? And that in this distinction, black path, these are not valence terms in terms of value. It's not one is good, one is bad. They are different ways of working in terms of self-transformation, personal alchemy, and they work with each other. So I've always used the term black path, white path. There's a history behind this. There's a heritage behind this, but you could equally use the term yin path and yang path. But I, I stick with black path and white path because it has a history. It has a, it has a genealogy to it. Now, black path transformative work is the path of death. A white path is the path of life, right? Now, this isn't literal death. It is the death of holding patterns. It is the death of illusions. It is the death of certain ways of doing things. It's the death of quote-unquote truth, right? Or a belief in truth. It is a letting go, okay? A dissolving. That is how Black Path works. Now, in self-development, you'll get some approaches to self-development that are very Black Path heavy, non-dual, three principles, the work of Byron Katie, 
right? Even stoicism has a huge amount of black path in it, right? They've all got different flavors of consciousness to them, but they're all essentially black path approaches. The idea is, is when we let go of what's been holding us, we become free to fall into something new. Okay, we fall out of the illusions of our life, out of the restricting beliefs, out of the cherished truths, out of the traps of mind that we were caught up in or traps of life. We free ourselves. That's the black path. That's the path of death. And in its most extreme forms, it might come to a reality where everything is illusion. We can't know anything. Um, so we're just free. Now, often that freedom, it can have a certain degree of peace, a certain degree of well-being that goes with it, but it often lacks dynamism. So people that talk about transcending the ego, you hear stories like Eckhart Tolle, who talks about the moment where he kind of woke up from his ego, a lot of waking up stuff has got a black path feel. And he says he didn't do anything for two years. You look at the work of Antonio Damasio, the neuroscientist and neurosurgeon. He's talked about when somebody's autobiographical self, as he calls it, which we might call the ego, all the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves to make sense of ourselves. When somebody's got a certain sort of brain damage that knocks their autobiographical self offline, they can still function to a degree. If you put a sandwich in front of them, they'll still eat it. If they know how to play piano and you sit them down in front of a piano, it's a good chance they'll play it. But they can't make decisions about their life, what they're going to choose to do, how they're going to choose to show up and engage with the world, right? So the black path has us fall out of a lot of illusion, but it also has us fall out of a lot of engagement with life. Now you might say, I want to fall out of the engagement with life because life is full of artifice and fakery and all sorts of stuff I don't like. I don't like the modern world or whatever. I've been in that place, by the way. I don't like the modern world. I want to get out of it. Right? Or we can live into life, connect more deeply, more richly, more fully into life, find ways of doing this. This is the white path approach. Now, a lot of self-development is more white path. How do you engage with life more effectively to bring about the outcomes that you want versus how do you fall out of the illusions that shape your engagement with life? Now, the truth is, is the two go together, in my view anyway. Like one of the frames that I use a lot is personal alchemy. And one of the old... Um, you know, formula, the old formula, classic formula of alchemy in Latin is solve a coagula, right? Dissolving and reconfiguring, right? Deconstruction and reification. If you want to use the language of some postmodernist thinkers, right? Because you want to dissolve what was in order to reformulate what is. I think people that are all black path, they end up disconnecting from the world, right? In a sense, they do die, even though they continue to live on a most basic level. So I'm a big advocate of black path and white path, solve a coagula, reification, getting more fully, more richly, more deeply into life in rich and vibrant ways, right? This is what Agents of Everything is about. It's about becoming more effective at engaging with the world in ways that create good things. The black path is part of that. The white path is part of that. So in a sense, Going back to pendulums, this idea of pendulums can be a tool, this can be a device or a way of seeing the world that can help you with a black path approach. Because a black path approach to this would be, we see the pendulum, we see its activity, its action, its patterns, its perpetuation, and we decline it. 
We walk away from it. We allow it to die by not feeding it energy. But Vadim Zeeland points something out here. Even if we succeeded in declining all pendulums, right? This would be like the ultimate black path act, ultimate path of death. He doesn't use this black path, white path terminology. I'm just fitting it in with my own philosophies on these things. Even if we were to succeed in doing this, then what? Right? Which is often what happens with an ultimate black path approach. It's now what? Now what? Because we need a new way of living. And if it isn't engaging in just a different set of pendula, what is it? So this is the bit that I found interesting, the next chapter. And the next chapter, Zeeland starts to talk about the wave of fortune. The wave of fortune. Now, I'm going to say, right, this is the kind of guy I am. Maybe I'm catching this wave. I haven't even finished this chapter. Here I am doing a podcast, talking about something in a sort of authoritative way, something I haven't even finished. Okay, but I'm going to say why the idea of the wave of fortune is a wave that immediately captured me and a wave that I immediately wanted to serve. Now, I didn't see this at the time. Maybe this was in the back of my mind. Maybe this is why I bought the book, Reality Transurfing. Because for many years, Chaos Wave was the name of my YouTube channel. And this was a basic fundamental idea of my philosophy of life. Right? My philosophy of life, people say, what is a chaos wave? I'd say, well, life is so complex. Right? There's so much complexity that we have to engage with and create within the world that we cannot control it. It might as well be chaos, right, to us. But it comes in waves, it moves. And if we want to be able to create with a world that is unpredictable and uncontrollable, what we need to be able to do is be like a surfer. And a surfer catches a wave, and then their place of power is knowing how to respond to the wave so they stay on the wave. Their place of power is never in trying to control the wave. This was the chaos wave metaphor that my YouTube channel was built around for a number of years. It didn't start off as that. It started off as a hypnosis without trance, then became chaos wave. And I will say, by the way, the chaos wave metaphor came to me when I was reading John Higgs' book on the band, the KLF, or the partnership, musical partnership, the KLF, Bill Drummond and Jimmy Corti. The book is called, I think, KLF, Chaos, Magic, and the Band That Burnt a Million Pounds, I think it's called, by John Higgs. I read this book. And it had a profound effect on my psyche, on my consciousness. I don't know if that was the intention of John Higgs in writing the book, but that's what it did to me. And in my mind, this idea, this image of a chaos wave came up. So for me, the philosophy of the chaos wave is you can't control chaos or complexity because it's not really chaos, it's complexity. You can't control it, but you can learn to relate to it in a way that enables you to catch waves that take you towards good outcomes. You can't pick the outcome ahead of time. I'm always saying, I love the Steve Jobs quote, you cannot connect the dots looking forward, only looking back, right? But you surf the wave. And this is exactly what, uh, what Vadim Zeeland is talking about, so far as I can tell so far. Once we stop being sucked into these pendulums, once we step away from them, we're going to live no life whatsoever unless we do something different. And what we want to do is sensitize ourselves to the waves, learn to pick up and surf the waves. This is not about control. 
I've talked about this elsewhere already on agents of everything, right? Influence versus control. A surfer has influence over how that comes out, how their riding of the wave comes out. They have influence, right? In how they meet the wave. They can develop skill in meeting the wave. They can never control the wave, right? So to me, I'm kind of excited that I'm picking up this guy's book or I'm listening to this guy's book and he's talking about exactly this same thing. And I, I like this metaphor. So I've talked about this in different ways. I've talked about it as nonlinear generative engagement, which is about learning to, I've talked about the metaphor of dance results out of reality versus trying to control reality towards a particular outcome, which almost never works, right? Just a year or so ago, I was introduced once again by Amazon, who know just how to push product to me. I was introduced to the work of Gervais Bush and Robert Marshak of the Bush Marshak Institute. They do organizational change and they have this distinction between diagnostic change versus dialogic change. For the diagnostic change, you go, right, here's what's going on. Here's what we need to do. And here's the result that it's going to get. They point out that this has been the dominant model in organizational change for a long time, and it never works, except when it does. But when it works, it works for reasons that were not foreseen. So that instead, we need to move to dialogic change. And dialogic here means being in dialogue, and this is a metaphor, in dialogue with the unfolding dynamic system, right? It's to do with how you engage in real time and steer it. It's again, it's another version of the metaphor of dancing results out of reality. How do we dance? How do we do the dialogic? Or how do we surf? So there's a profound truth underneath of this. I love that Vadim Zeeland is touching on this because so many people who, um, now he's definitely what I would call an esoteric writer, and I'm a sucker for esoteric philosophy, right? I don't think all of it is of equal value. To me, it's just material that I use to stimulate my own thinking, my own creative juices. Um, I accept none of it. I reject none of it. Uh, and I consider all of it. I see what I can create with it. So I'm a sucker for esoteric philosophy. And I like a lot of the new thought stuff. But if you look at a lot of classic new thought manifestation stuff, a lot of it's the same. It's the same old, same old. You get a clear vision in mind. Or you keep thinking and adding energy to your vision, and in the end, your vision manifests somehow. Now, I don't know where Vadim Zeeland is going with this. I don't know where he's going with this. So maybe he's going to go back towards that. But what he seems to be in greater alignment with is what I call the looser grip approach. And I'll come back to Gervais Bush and Robert Marshak in a moment when I talk about this. So like a tight grip, a lot of approaches to doing life and what I call the linear approach is we have a clear outcome. You see this in self-development. You see people talking about or in business coaching, whatever. We want to have a smart goal, specific, measurable, whatever it is. And the last one, the T is time bound. It's all very specific, all very tight, right? Uh, in NLP, there's the idea of the well-formed outcome. A well-formed outcome is positive. It is owned. It is sensorial. So you can see, hear, feel, you know, specifically, it's sensorial or specific. That's what the S in my acronym stands for. It's all about specificity. Now, linear approaches to life are all about that. We get a specific goal and we figure out what needs to happen to get it. Now, that aligns with Chavez Bush and Robert Marshak's 
diagnostic approach, right? It's controlling. It's very productive based. Okay. And I'm not saying it never works. Obviously I do that when I make a cup of coffee, it does work as long as what we're dealing with, the variables are reasonably simple. I go, right. I want a cup of coffee. I'm going to get my coffee pot. Oh, there's no coffee in the pot. So I just need to make sure I open a new packet of coffee, put it in, right? I know what I need to do. I'm not really dancing results out of reality because I'm dealing with simplicity, not complexity. But most of the situations in life that we're dealing with, particularly all pendulums, they're all complex. There's a complex interaction of patterns, right? We cannot work with them in this linear way. So often in life, people fail because they're trying to do life linearly and they end up in struggle, trying to realize a clear vision and the goal isn't serving them. It gets them stuck. So what I like about Vadim Zeeland's approach is it seems to be aligned with the concept of emergence, which is a bigger thing in how I do life, in my philosophy, in the chaos wave philosophy. Chaos wave philosophy, or whatever you want to call it, I call it nonlinear generative engagement, is not about aiming for a target. It's about engaging generatively and seeing what fruits come out from that. Right? It's not the coffee machine model of the universe where you go, uh, insert coin, make selection, out comes the coffee. It's a much more natural, organic way of working. You cast seeds into the river. You don't know which of those seeds will wash up where and which fruit trees will grow. But at some point later in your journey, you're feasting on fruit. And you may never know whether that came from one of the seeds that you cast. And this is the non-linear approach, right? There's a loose grip on outcomes and a connection into generative engagement. Now, you can split the difference with this. I don't know where Adam Zeeland's going, but if you take the Bush Marshak stuff, they have a really nice idea that they call the generative image, right? The generative image. And the generative image is something that attracts you towards it, is something that has you move, that has you come alive. It's an abstract idea that captures the imagination and creates energy within you and has you wish to move towards it, but is utterly unspecific in what it might finally look like, right? It's different from a tightly held smart goal, which is very specific. It's non-specific. Okay. Now, um, I'll give you an example of a generative image, something non-specific. The example that Gervais Bush uses particularly, his favorite example is that of uh, sustainable development. The sustainable development is a concept that changed the business world and nobody even knows what it means. It just captures people's imagination and has them take action. They don't know how it will manifest. And it's this looseness of concept that allows it to be generative for it to produce unexpected fruit, right? This is the point for me of what I've often called nonlinear generative engagement. You get surprised by the result, right? Which is why it's aligned more with creativity than productivity. If somebody's productive, they're not surprised by their results. When somebody's creative, they surprise themselves with their results. Okay, so what I like is it seems to me that Vadim Zeeland is a kindred spirit in this sense. Um, I'll give you another example of a generative image, by the way, right? And it, because it's useful to hold an outcome in this way. I've got a video somewhere up on my YouTube channel that's called How a Hypnotist Holds an Outcome. And I use a metaphor there of um, 
an interview that was once conducted with Errol Flynn, who used to be an actor in those old swashbuckling films, and he was known for his fine sword work. And somebody had asked him about the secret to swordsmanship, and he said, well, the secret to swordsmanship is you have to hold the sword like you would hold a baby bird. Not so tight that you crush the life out of it, but not so loose that it flies away, right? So I've always said, like, as a hypnotic facilitator, that's how I hold outcomes, but it's also how I do life. I want to have outcomes, but I want to make sure they're not tightly held. So I don't do, personally speaking, this isn't an advocation of any particular way of doing things for other people. I'm talking about my own life, my own philosophy, how I choose to generate and create in the world. Right? Yes, I'm going to have outcomes, but I know if I hold them too tightly, I will crush the life out of them. I will move out of non-linearity into linearity. I will move out of creativity into maybe productivity. Maybe I'll still get something done. It's going to chew up a lot of my energy as I go. I will likely move out of influence and into the struggle of attempted control. And I will stop surfing what I call the chaos wave. Right? But what Vadim Zeeland, I believe he's talking about the same thing when he talks about the wave of fortune. Okay. And maybe that's nice, the wave of fortune, because it gets people to understand, actually, if I just catch this wave, I'm going good places. Okay. So we get to be non-linear. We get to be surprised at where we show up. But that doesn't mean having no forward vision. It doesn't mean not holding an outcome. And again, I don't know what Vadim Zeeland has to say on this, but this idea of the generative image is a loosely held outcome. It has ambiguity in it. The purpose of it is to capture imagination, to feed you energy, to have you move. My favorite example of a generative image, and I'm going to give a language warning here because I'm going to borrow the example of Dave Goggins. So Dave Goggins has been a pull-ups champion, an ultramarathon runner. He trained as a smoke jumper, which is a really tough thing to do at an advanced age after his knees were shot and all sorts of things. He's a general tough guy, but he says when he was in his early 20s, he was going nowhere flipping burgers and he didn't have a very good self-image. He thought he wasn't a very intelligent guy, but he decided he could be a tough guy. And he decided he was going to become, and excuse my language here, but this is Dave Goggins' language, the hardest motherfucker that ever lived. Right? Now, that's not a well-formed outcome. That's loose. It's a generative image. It inspires him and has him move. He says quite openly, I didn't know what that looked like to start with. I didn't know whether I was going to be a professional wrestler or a power lifter or whatever. Right? All that he knew is it had him come alive and move to take action in the world, to live into a created life. All unfolding from this idea of becoming the hardest motherfucker that ever lived. Right? That's a generative image. But it enables him to have that clear beacon, right? That sense of direction, that sense of energy. Now, if you got that, let's go back to pendulums. Let's go back to waves of fortune or chaos waves. If you've got that, you can start looking at life and looking at the pendulums of life going, is this in alignment with me becoming what I want, right? Or realizing what I want. If the answer is no, you can step back. You can decline those pendulums fall away from them. Okay. One of the things I got from my time in the three principles was the idea of being able to fall out of your thinking and into your well-being. Because if you relate this to the idea of pendulums, when you fall out of your thinking, right, your thinking will be part of the behavioral set that is feeding into the pendulum that you're engaged with and you're feeding energy to. When you fall out of your thinking with it, 
and into your well-being, you are doing the equivalent of, at least for a time, declining that pendulum. And it creates space. Right? It's a very black path approach, fall out of your thinking and into your well-being. Right? Your well-being may not have any dynamism in it, in and of itself, but if you introduce a generative image, right, if you start to become aware of where you want to head approximately roughly somewhere that is going to be good and you don't know how it's going to be good, but you know that it's going to be good. And then you open to the deeper waves, right? Waves can be hard to catch. And I'll offer you a metaphor. A huge wave, when it's out in the ocean before it crests, it's not always easy to know how big that wave is going to be, right? It's a less clear thing. So you have to have more sensitivity to when to catch it. And then it's going to crest and it's going to take you towards your outcome. All right. So that's all I really want to say. I think I've said enough on the topic of the power of the pendulum and surfing the chaos wave or waves. And I've talked a bit there about some things I've never really talked about on Agents of Everything before, which is my philosophy of nonlinear generative engagement or dancing results out of reality or surfing results out of reality. But we will almost certainly return to this topic in the near future. Okay. If you found this episode useful, I would love for you to rate and review it on the platform you're listening on. If you've not subscribed to the Agents of Everything Substack, please do subscribe. There is a free level of membership there. There will always be a free level of membership. These podcasts will always be free. You support me in this work by even subscribing as a free subscriber there. Soon I am going to put an extra level on for people who wish to contribute a little bit further, but that will never be obligatory. And as part of that, I will be doing some monthly calls, open frames, Q and A's and stuff like that. In addition for people who want to engage with me more personally. Okay. So please do engage on agents of everything. If you're on Spotify, listening to this, please do give this a review. If you like it, please do share with your friends. If you like it, all of this is good stuff. If you would like to get more for yourself out of agents of everything and on Substack, you can also use the comment section to make requests or ask questions. Okay. Thank you for being here. And I look forward to when we next connect.